0: The rough draft of most of my impact statement scripts begins with an introduction about how this episode is not like the others you've heard on this podcast. I see these cases as so individual and nuanced that they really do all seem to me to be one-of-a-kind stories. But then I rewrite the introduction, pointing out the elements that stand out. You know the writing adage, show, don't tell. But this month, I'm just going to tell you. I spoke with Vincent Merle, whose nine-year-old brother went missing, and the police didn't even send out a detective. A search of the archives of multiple newspapers shows two articles, one printed on page 22C five months after this little boy went missing. This is a story unlike any I have ever told. This is a story of Anthony Merle a nine-year-old boy who vanished, and a family who has been waiting since 1971 for him to return home. I'm Charlie, and this is Impact Statement. When a crime ends in a conviction, the victims or their families are often allowed to give a statement to the court about the impact of the crime on their lives. But when these life-altering events go unsolved, do not end in a conviction, or maybe aren't crimes at all, the victims and their families do not have this opportunity. The stories on this podcast are their impact statements. was the youngest in a line of stair-stepped children. I spoke with his brother Vincent over the phone.
1: I was, let me see, 13. My older brother Stuart was 14. My younger brother Alfred was 12 and my sister was 11. And Anthony was 9.
0: The family lived in Atlanta, Georgia in 1971, though they were from North Carolina originally. At the time, they lived with their mother and their stepfather, but things weren't always calm at home. Their stepfather, Edward Groves, was violent.
1: He had bought a house, and we supposed to been moving into the new house, and then some kind of some kind of way the relationship went rocky because at the time they was uh, they, they was on the outs. It was breaking up. No, because they've got into a fight before, and I seen them stab her with a knife. So I know how vicious he can be.
0: Vincent remembers the night Anthony went missing. It was late on November thirteenth, nineteen
1: seventy-one. My mom was working at McDonald's, and I came home and I was tired and I was going to sleep. And I could see him jump up on the top bunk, and that was the last time I ever seen him because I went to sleep.
0: Vincent slept through whatever happened next. When Vincent woke up, Anthony was gone, but there was no sign of a struggle. It just appeared that he had gotten out of his bed and left the room. Except he was nowhere in the apartment either, and their mother immediately reported him missing. There was one early sighting that Vincent remembers was later recanted. It
1: was a guy in the neighborhood named Gary Taylor. He's he's deceased now. He said that he'd seen Anthony get in the car with my mother's boyfriend. And Ed swore up and down that it wasn't him, and he started yelling at Gary, and Gary kind of backed down and said, well, maybe I didn't see it.
0: Though the neighbor backed away from this statement, the family believes that this was due to intimidation by Edward and that this was very likely what had happened, that Anthony got into a car with his stepfather and was never seen again. But in one of the two articles I found on this case, It was reported that Anthony was last seen speaking with a taxi driver. But there's no indication of who witnessed this. Anthony was then classified as a runaway. After searches back in North Carolina where his father and extended family lived provided no clues, the police said they believed Anthony was still in Atlanta. The two articles on this case I could find were from two Atlanta newspapers. One was the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, and the second was the Atlanta Daily World. I personally only found one of the articles. Laura, from the Fall Line podcast, sent me the other one. I didn't have access to the digital archives of the Atlanta Daily World. The article in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution is less about Anthony and more about a community group that had raised $500 for a reward in the case. This article was published five months after Anthony went missing, and it provided no picture or description of him. At the risk of repeating myself, they ran an article about a nine-year-old boy who was missing for five months, and they didn't even run a picture or a description. The other article was from the Atlanta Daily World, and this one did include a picture. My name is Camille Whitaker.
2: I am the associate editor for Atlanta Daily World, as well as Atlanta Tribune, the magazine. And these are both publications that are considered to be a part of the the historical Black press.
0: The Atlanta Daily World and other publications of the historical Black press grew out of necessity. Camille provided me with some of that background.
2: The Atlanta Daily World it was it was founded in 1928 by uh, it was family run and operated by the Scots, and it was founded roughly 100 years after the first official black press paper, uh, Freedom's Journal was founded in 1827, um, and it was founded under the charge of being the voice for the voiceless and wishing to plead our own cause. It said specifically in in their first editorial, we wish to plead our own cause, and that's relevant to what we're talking about today as well. So, you know, I always ask, what does that look like, or what were the conditions that created that need? The Black press and and later the Associated Negro Press and the publications and practitioners that made it up, um, they made up insurgent media spaces, some of which advocated for liberation at every turn, um, But I, I believe the chief utility came with being an extension of thinking and reading and writing traditions that are rooted all the way back to antiquity. So the Black press and later the Atlanta Daily World assumed a lot of that re- responsibility uh, for the inscription of the Africana experience. And it served a purpose of communication, of cultural continuity, memory, and recovery, and instructions on how to be and how to live. So you see this in, in small ways, but very specifically and critically, it served as a form of record-keeping. So you had black uh, obituaries and birth announcements and wedding announcements all that were all omitted from other newspapers. Uh, on the legal front, you know, due process did not apply, so that's why you see uh, writers and journalists such as Ida B. Wells Barnett who made it her life's work to document each and every lynching, not just the actual reporting of it, but like also the why as well, the analysis. So the Atlanta Daily World, in many ways, picks up as a part of this genealogy. It served as a critical legal organ in the South. Um, specifically Atlanta. So to this day I get calls of people wanting to locate clips, uh, they know something happened during this time, and they they know that it was in the paper, because it was. We recorded everything. Birth announcements, obituaries, wedding announcements, things of that nature. So in the 1970s, ADW was emerging out of the post-World War II, Civil Rights Movement era, didn't have substantial competition until this time, um, from 1928 until the 60s, so you had Atlanta Voice and Atlanta Inquirer coming out in the 60s, but it, would, it still remained the paper of record. So the archives show that the Atlanta Daily World took a very you know, vocal and public stance on anything related to missing boys, murdered boys, going dating all the way back uh, to the, the Scottsboro Nine, to Emmett Till, to the Atlanta Child Murders, Um, And then currently, um, the Trayvon Martin killings, as well as Mike Brown. So there's, you know, history and archives there that show that the documenting can be found in, and the chronicling can be found in the Atlanta Daily World. So it's no surprise to me that the police department sought the help of the Atlanta Daily World because that's where the records of the Black community would lie.
0: So it wasn't surprising to Camille that the only article with a photograph about Anthony was found in the Atlanta Daily World. We had hoped to find more articles on Anthony in the paper, but have so far been unable to do so. A change came to Atlanta in regards to the reporting of events from the Black community in 1979 with the Atlanta child murders. Though some of the victims were adults, the Atlanta Child Murders refers to a string of 28 murders that occurred in a two-year period from mid-1979 to mid-1981. All of the victims were Black. These killings, many of them believed to be linked to a single killer named Wayne Williams, received more press in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution than previous missing and murdered children and adults from Atlanta's black community ever did before. But by the time of the Atlanta child murders, Anthony had already been missing for eight years. Vincent told me that when Anthony went missing, the family never spoke to anyone other than the uniformed police officer who took the initial missing persons report. They did no formal interviews with detectives, and they always expected that Anthony would return.
1: Well, it happened in November, and everybody was thinking, well, he'd be home by Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving came, didn't show up, and it was Christmas and New Year's, and his birthday is in January. Since then, we don't we are not excited around the holiday season. Holidays just don't mean nothing to us now. I try to get excited for other people, but I just can't. They don't mean nothing to us.
0: The lack of response by law enforcement stood out to me as unusual, even for the 1970s. So I called Heidi Galore, host of the Unsolved podcast. Heidi is a crime analyst with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Heidi told me that if Anthony went missing today, this is not how it would have been handled.
3: Today, the way it should go is, and this is nationally, um, any child under 18 has to be entered into the National Crime Information Center uh, computing system, the database, NCIC. There's a deadline of two hours. They have to be entered in there if, they're, uh, if they meet all the criteria of you missing know, child, which the criteria is just that one of the parent or guardians does not know where the child is. I know that working for the center, I've been there for over 10 years. We basically will get calls to assist law enforcement on missing child cases. What we do is we help compel law enforcement sometimes to make sure that they do enter the child in, to advise them that they have to. Sometimes there's some pushback. But at that point, really, the main thing is just getting the child entered in, their information. After that, it's really up to the department's procedural guidelines about what they're supposed to be doing. If the child is missing and it's below about twelve, there's no possible way that child is considered a runaway. It, you can't you literally can't classify them as a runaway below the age of twelve. So in this particular case I see that I think you mentioned that they believe he ran away. Back then it was definitely a difference police departments thing once they consider the child a runaway, a lot of times they would sort of pull back resources or tell the parents well just wait they'll come back kind of thing and that's that's not the way it should be done today what should be happening today is getting as much out there as possible in the area where they believe the child might be going whether that's um, directed posters or if that's going as the officer going out to the places where the child might be and actually looking that's what's supposed to be happening and for the large majority of it, it is happening.
0: Another way the National Center can help law enforcement is with cold case reviews. Using a crime analyst like Heidi, they can identify leads that weren't followed up on or other unexplored avenues. And the family has tried this. Vincent has connected with another Atlanta family who has a missing child, the family of Raymond Lamar Green, who was kidnapped at just five days old. Donna Green, Raymond's mother, has been a fierce advocate for the families of missing children, and you can hear her story on the latest season of the Fall Line podcast. Donna's advice to the Murrell family was to get the case file on Anthony's disappearance. This way, they could have him listed with the National Center. All efforts towards this, however, have been unsuccessful. Vincent said he was told by the Atlanta PD that the file is so old that it likely doesn't exist anymore. I filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the Atlanta PD three months prior to the release of this episode and have yet to hear anything from them on the status of my request. Without a case file, there is no cold case to review, just a family holding the memory of a nine-year-old boy who would be a 57-year-old man today. Vincent believes an investigation into Anthony's case could bring actual answers to the family in spite of Anthony being missing for 47 years. Because Vincent and his siblings, they believe there's a good chance that Anthony is still alive. This is not because they believe he ran away. Vincent described Anthony as a very normal kid and most importantly, a very happy one. He had never been in trouble, and while his mother and stepfather's volatile relationship surely caused stress, Anthony was the baby of the family and was, in Vincent's words, everyone's favorite. He was cared for, he was happy, and he had strong bonds with his siblings and with his mother. In short, he had nothing to run away from and nothing to run away to. The reason they hold on to hope that Anthony is alive is because they believe their stepfather is the one who kidnapped Anthony. They believe the neighbor's sighting. And they believe because Edward loved Anthony, he may not have harmed him.
1: Well, if they could find Ed, I don't Ed is dead, but if he had any relatives, because my brother was saying that he had a sister that couldn't have kids. And he was thinking that he might have took Anthony to go live with her. All right. And I think he lived in, she lived in the uh, Orlando, Florida.
0: In speaking with Heidi, she said, this is absolutely a possibility. If Edward Groves wanted to continue to have access to his young stepson who he loved and wanted to punish Anthony's mother for breaking things off with him, it is possible he took Anthony and gave him to a relative. Today, you can do almost nothing without proper documentation, but in the early 1970s, it's possible Anthony could have even been allowed to enroll into school without records. Anthony turned 10 years old just two months after he went missing. Heidi said that at that age, it would be expected that he would remember his first name, even if the family changed it. He may not remember his original last name. Anthony's birth date is January 18, 1962. If this was altered, he may not remember it. He may have even been told he was a year older or younger than his actual age. Anthony's mother died five years ago, never knowing what happened to her son. If he is alive today, Anthony would be 57 years old. It's possible he was moved to Florida. He may be out there, and Vincent and his siblings are ready for him to come home. If you are interested in sharing your story on Impact Statement, please email impactstatementpod at gmail.com or find me on Twitter at Statement Pod.